Good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for joining. Happy New Year and welcome to our first Tuesdays with Merton webinar of 2024. I'm Liz Burkemper and I serve on the board of directors for the International Thomas Merton Society. Tuesdays with Merton is presented by the International Thomas Merton Society and co-sponsored by the Bernadine Center at Catholic Theological Union in Chicago. Join us for this webinar series on the second Tuesday of each month. Tonight's webinar will be recorded and later available both on YouTube and as a podcast soon after the live event. The talk will be followed by moderated discussion and Q&A and our speaker has provided discussion questions on which you can reflect and comment during this time, or you can ask any questions you might have of the speaker after the talk. Now, I would like to turn it over to Judith Valente, president of the International Thomas Merton Society to deliver our opening prayer. A very warm good evening to everyone. On behalf of the entire board, of the International Thomas Merton Society, I welcome you. It's so great to have you and we send you all our New Year's blessings. I'd like to begin with a prayer, hopefully that speaks to the situation we find ourselves in in the world now. It was a prayer written by Thomas Merton in his book, The Nonviolent Alternative. And as we contemplate the terrible wars going on in our, our heart's desire for peace, we pray this prayer. Grant us prudence in proportion to our power, wisdom in proportion to our science, and humanness in proportion to our wealth and might. Bless our earnest will to help all races and people to travel in friendship along the road to justice, liberty, and lasting peace. Grant us above all to see that our ways are not necessarily your ways, that we cannot fully penetrate the mystery of your designs, but grant us to see your face in the lightning of this cosmic storm. O oh God of holiness, merciful to all, grant us to seek peace where it is truly found, for in your will, Oh God, is our peace. Amen. Thank you so much, Judy, for setting the tone for the evening. And now it is my absolute joy to introduce our speaker of the evening, Anne Pearson. Anne is a graduate of Bellarmine University where she earned a degree in political science and psychology and studied the encroachment of prisons into the public school system through disciplinary alternative schools. While at Bellarmine, she completed a thesis on Thomas Merton and racism and has since presented her research at multiple national and international conferences and as a TEDx talk. Anne currently lives in Washington, DC where she provides resources to graduate nursing students across the country and advocates for more equitable higher education. 
Here is Anne Pearson speaking on white man writing on racism, Thomas Merton and letters to a white liberal. Anne. Thank you so much, Liz, for the introduction and Judy for the prayer um, that was shared as we started. As the heroes throughout the Southern United States during the summer of 2020, people across the country took to the streets as part of the Black Lives Matter movement in response to the deaths of Ahmaud Arbery, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and many others. Even with the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic, between May 26th and August 22nd of that year, an estimated 7,750 demonstrations occurred in 2,440 locations scattered across every state, many more internationally, and the vast majority of which were peaceful. It was during this summer that I first engaged with the writings of Thomas Merton, a Trappist monk who lived at the Abbey of Gethsemane near Bardstown, Kentucky from the 1940s to the 1960s. He's best known for his autobiography, The Seven Story Mountain, and his works on contemplation, war, and spirituality but he also wrote extensively on race in response to the civil rights movement to which he was a witness during the last decade of his life. While he may have been physically isolated from the outside world as a cloistered monk and an eventual hermit, Merton was aware of the events occurring across the country as his wide ranging acquaintances sent him newspaper clippings and articles appraising him of the major events, a number of which were mentioned in his published and private writings. He was also influenced by pieces like James Baldwin's 1962 New Yorker article, Letter from a Region of My Mind, which was a precursor to his The Fire Next Time, which detailed the violence of systemic racism in Harlem. Thomas Merton's response included his most well-known piece on racial inequality, Letters to a White Liberal, which is found in his book, Seeds of Destruction. In it, he identifies the root of the civil rights movement in the discriminatory actions of white society, speaking of the stark reality that our society itself is radically violent and that violence is built into its very structure. And he continues to say that the white conception of order has nothing whatever to do with the protection of the rights or lives of African-Americans. Whether we are talking about a prison system that disproportionately devours people of color, a school system that overwhelmingly operates under resourced schools in neighborhoods of color, a medical system which historically and presently runs many of its experiment, experimental hospitals in these same areas while denying their residents equal access to care, or any number of ongoing examples, Merton's words continue to ring true as they did when they were first published in 1964. In Letters to a White Liberal, he goes beyond this diagnosis and places the blame for such limited change at the feet of the titled group, focusing on the ways in which white liberals react to change and stagnate the movement. Before diving in, though, a brief overview of the language that will be used throughout this presentation. Merton uses the language of his time to refer to people of color, and many Merton scholars have opted to keep the original language when quoting his words. However, I'm of the strong opinion that words have power which have been imbued in them through their historical uses, and that the terms which Merton used are no longer appropriate, nor is it necessary to quote them directly unless changing the language fundamentally changes the meaning of what he is saying. 
This latter circumstance will occur once during this presentation and will be preceded by a warning. But apart from this, all phrases referring to individuals of color will be updated. And I believe Merton would have approved of this adjustment, just as I would hope that any reference to any of my work in the future would be updated as our language and our society changes. With this in mind, let us briefly dive into Merton's main criticisms of white liberals, who he defines as those who must support some of the demands of the movement for racial justice to maintain their image of themselves as a liberal, but who perhaps unknowingly value their material comforts security and congenial relationship with the establishment over this volatile idealism. This definition certainly requires some uncomfortable self-examination as it did for me when I first read it and was struck by it in the summer of 2020. Even when we do take action towards racial justice without allowing our comfort and security to get in the way, Merton suggests that most of us don't do it solely because we are interested in achieving justice but rather because we want to alleviate the stress of the cognitive dissonance that we feel when we aren't visibly supporting the movement. He then rebukes this behavior, saying that the private needs of your liberal conscience are of absolutely no interest to African-Americans who have a much more urgent problem to solve, and your presence is not necessarily helping them to solve it. It seems that Merton looked into the future and saw things like the trend of the black squares on social media where for a day or two, it was the popular thing to post a black square on your feed to show support for the Black Lives Matter movement. The intention of these squares may originally have been good, but they very quickly became an I'm not racist sticker that white liberals were using on their pages to indicate to their followers that they didn't openly oppose the movement. In this case, the posts were wholly performative and very vague, allowing individuals to vocalize support in a way that was just enough to ease their dissonance without requiring them to make any effort to truly combat white supremacy and racism internally or externally. Even worse, the presence of these posts actively hindered the movement by overwhelming hashtags that were being used by the protesters to communicate information, very directly getting in the actual way of the work as Merton foresaw. The vagueness of these posts are another core trait which Merton ascribes to white liberals, saying, since it is one of the characteristics of liberals that they prefer their future to be vaguely predictable, when you see that the future is entirely out of your hands, you are going to fall back on the past. As part of this retreat backwards, Merton predicts that white liberals will attempt to limit societal reforms while telling people of color to go slow and be patient. Engaging in a well-meaning liberal policy of compromises and concessions, striving at the same time to placate African-Americans and to calm the seething indignation of conservative whites. This was true across the United States and the world in 2020, and one of the clearest examples occurred in Louisville, Kentucky, which was a city not far from where Merton did the majority of his writings and the city where Breonna Taylor was murdered. While the police were tear-gassing the peaceful protesters by night, people like the former mayor, Greg Fisher, were reminding those under attack that reforms to the policing system take time, as if they had not been asking for the same reforms since Mern's lifetime. Fisher took to Twitter to remind the demonstrators that the members of the administration continue to support peaceful protests in the park, as long as the protesters are not obstructing traffic or sidewalks, 
and are allowing people to get into their places of employment or government buildings. Ironically, some of his messages encouraging protesters to stay out of sight and out of mind were filmed at Fourth and Walnut, a street which was key to Merton's racial justice writings, where he realized he could no longer maintain a false sense of separateness from humanity. Beyond this policy of compromises and concession, Merton concludes that even when we are dedicated to the goals of the movement and place them above our need to be in the spotlight, we tend to lack long-term commitment. This, again, requires an uncomfortable self-examination. Have we maintained a dedication to racial equity now that the work is no longer making headlines every day? Or have we fallen into the white liberal behaviors which Merton outlined? Just as his major diagnoses of these behaviors remain relevant, so too do the majority of his solutions, even at a time where protests are much more racially diverse than when he was writing and where the internet has fundamentally changed how we communicate. He writes that we must acknowledge the power of racism as a societal and institutional force, one which historically and presently benefits us, becoming less interested in our own spiritual and material comforts and putting aside the needs of our liberal consciousnesses. This examination is vitally important, according to Merton, because these feelings prompt inaction. And as he said, white people have not failed when left to themselves to block, obstruct, or simply forget the necessary action without which the rights of African-Americans cannot be enjoyed. Here he places an action on the same level as willfully blocking equity, exhibiting that he believed non-intervention to be just as harmful. The alternate to inaction, according to Merton, is an atonement that must consist of two things, a complete reform of the social system which permits and breeds such injustices, and two, that this work of reorganization must be carried out under the inspiration of people of color whose providential time has now arrived. Merton acknowledged that this work would lead to society being radically changed if it was successful, and that was his hope. Both Merton's criticisms and solutions line up almost line for line with books on racism that have been published around the world and have become popular in recent years demonstrating his continued relevancy and encouraging us to examine his writings both in the American context in which they were written and the international context of a globalized world where they are becoming increasingly relevant. Now, let me be clear. This, what I've just presented, is far from a comprehensive survey of letters to a white liberal, let alone Merton's more broad writings on racism found in Faith and Violence, Ishi Means Man and his letters and journals, among others. But that's not the purpose of my talk tonight, as this has been studied, although significantly less well studied than Merton's writings on spirituality, contemplation, war, or peace. Instead, this overview was provided to demonstrate that Merton was able to write on racial injustice and white liberal behavior in exceedingly accurate ways that continue to be highly relevant in our present moment. With this accuracy in mind, we can now shift to the all-important question at the core of this conversation. What role should Merton, a cloistered white monk, have in speaking on racism? Does Merton, as a white male religious author, have the authority to accurately speak on these issues when he himself participated in many of the structures he intently critiqued? 
First and foremost, all of Merton's most prolific writings on race were produced while he was living as a Trappist under the hierarchy of the Catholic Church. Before diving into this discussion, it's important to delineate between the institution that is the church and the people who make up its congregations. On one hand, there is the establishment or the magisterium, which is the church's claimed authority to give an authentic interpretation of the word of God, a power that is vested in the Pope and the bishops. This results in a hierarchy through which its teachings on scripture and doctrine are officially laid out. In reality, though, once these teachings have been laid out, members of the institution like bishops or priests can interpret the teachings differently, as they often do. To make matters more complicated, the Catholic Church is also comprised of its congregations, the living tradition in which its teachings are manifested. If the Catholic Church is a body, the magisterium is a skeletal support structure, and the congregation is the spirit that animates it. Again, these aspects of the church may not always be in harmony as the institution may decide on one interpretation of the Bible, whilst congregations find another perspective that they believe is more accurate. For example, the magisterium has repeatedly ruled over the years that homosexuality is a sin, but there are many, many practicing members within the church who are in LGBTQ plus relationships that don't believe that their love should be forbidden. Of course, this has changed in recent years and in recent weeks, actually, with new decrees. Thus, there are numerous contradictions inherent to the Catholic Church as it acts, and it's necessary to take this into account when examining Merton's position as an individual within this historic establishment speaking on this subject. With that in mind, however, the overarching institution of the Catholic Church in the United States has had an atrocious record on the topic of racism. As Damien Sojourner explores on his book on Black in his book on Black cultural enclosures in United States public schools, the church moved beyond complicity to active participation in slavery by working to uphold the institution and directly benefiting from it. He outlines, the dominant narrative of the Catholic involvement with slavery in the United States was its participation in the thriving enterprise. Many orders such as the Loretto of Kentucky were started as a direct result of selling enslaved black workers. Many of the women brought slaves with them to the religious orders as part of their dowries. Similarly, the National Catholic Reporter points out that there were times in the history of the United States from the colonial era to the Civil War, where the Roman Catholic Church was the largest corporate slaveholder in Florida, Louisiana, Maryland, Missouri, and Kentucky demonstrating just how embedded slavery was in the culture of the church at the time. Thus, the financial benefit reaped by the US Catholic Church meant that the establishment was generally supportive of slavery, although there were, of course, exceptions, including an 1839 apostolic letter by Pope Gregory XVI, which condemned the slave trade, a statement which many bishops in the United States rejected while continuing to maintain their slave holdings by saying it condemned the slave trade and not slavery itself. Examining the United States context further, there were a few religious orders which allowed free African-American women to enter their ranks, but they continued to face widespread discrimination in the church and were not allowed to wear their habits in public until decades after their founding. Beyond these spaces of minimal movement, there are no apparent examples of Catholic abolitionist leaders prior to the Civil War who were driven by their faith to condemn the institution of slavery on a national level. And no father or doctor of the church of the time was ever an unqualified abolitionist. 
Thus, while the Catholic Church did have a role in rejecting slavery, the reality of its culture during this era in the United States was one of extreme marginalization of its Black members for the benefit of their white counterparts. The, this participation in the so-called original sin of the United States was not far removed from the Abbey of Gethsemane, the Trappist monastery to which Merton dedicated his life. One-time Louisville-based journalist Diane April reveals exactly how close to home it was in her official book on the history of the Abbey. Following the laying of the cornerstone on March 25, 1853, construction began in earnest, and more than a few Black slaves also worked on the monastery in those pre-Civil War days. In one case, a local planter loaned his slaves to the community as his contribution to the project. In another, the monastery rented a neighbor's slave. The fee went to the slave owner, of course, not to the slave who did the work. Only a few years later, Gethsemane offered its hospitality to soldiers from both sides during the Civil War, tactically choosing not to align itself with the Confederacy or the Union while the war raged, likely to protect its rather precarious position near Bardstown, Kentucky. This fact, combined with the use of slaves to build the monastery, shows that Gethsemane was in line with the wider institutional church at the time, because it was at best complicit and at worst profited from it. These points on the Catholic Church's historic reliance on slavery and the role that the institution played in Gethsemane's founding do not necessarily discredit Thomas Merton's later writings on race, and they're not highlighted with the goal of doing so. Instead, they're mentioned for the same reason that it's inaccurate to talk about the history of the US without acknowledging that the country was built on the backs of people of color. We as white people, and especially as white liberals, according to Merton, must recognize the collective and individual responsibility that comes from the benefit of living in a society that relied on slave labor to become what it is today, just as Gethsemane and the wider church would not exist in their current forms without their reliance on slaves. Subjugation was fundamental to the history of the space where Merton produced the vast majority of his writings, including those on the civil rights movement, and this fact must be taken into account. Decades later, once the institution of slavery had been formally abolished and the civil rights movement was in full swing, the Catholic Church's role in upholding racist structures became even more complicated. In some ways, it was a tale of two cities, divided, for the most part, by race. On one hand, Catholic churches, along with other Christian denominations, continue to be places of intense segregation and physical violence, demonstrated when Louisiana Catholics set fire to a parochial school rather than allow it to be integrated, and when a white priest was beaten by his white parishioners for allowing both black and white children to receive their first communions together. Merton was aware of these events and wrote in response to them, and it prompted him to write, the Catholics have explicitly and formally identified themselves with racial segregation. At the same time, the Catholic bishops in the United States issued two statements, one in 1958 and the other in 1963, both stating that they were taking an official stance against segregation and racial discrimination. These declarations actually bear a striking responsibility to Gregory XVI's apostolic letter in that they did not change the reality of racial divisions in the Catholic Church any more than his letter ended slavery. Instead, more movement towards equality was created at the individual and congregational level within the church. 
For example, Black Catholics were at the forefront of the civil rights movement and changed the institution of the church itself to move it towards some semblance of equality. There are also a number of white Catholics who were driven by their faith to speak out against the evils of racism and numerous unnamed religious who supported the protests in Selma, Alabama and across the South. Thus, while some parts of the white Catholic church were fighting to maintain the supremacist social structure of the time, there were also a number of Catholics who were standing up for justice, and Merton was one such Catholic. However, the divided nature of the Catholic church had a significant impact on his ability to speak his mind at the time. For example, his publications on war and peace were considered too radical and were restricted by the abbot general who invoked Merton's monastic vow of obedience to his superiors to protect the Trappist order from more pro-military members within the church hierarchy, resulting in his mimeographed letters that were later published after his death in the Cold War letters. There aren't such clear examples of Merton being censored by the church for his writings on race, as the abbot general correctly felt that racism was a human rights issue that everyone should be aware of. However, it's very likely that he still self-centered some of these writings because of the strict nature of his order's censors, a fact of which he was acutely aware. In fact, he once joked in a letter that the Pope is lucky he does not have to be approved by the censors of our order, he would never get by them. Similarly, he later quipped that if he copied the Our Father for publication, it would be censored. In all seriousness, his experience of being blocked by his order and his annoyance with the general inaction of the Catholic Church led him to express anger and frustration with his superiors in letters to his contemporaries, including the African-American priest, August Thompson, who generously shared his experience as a black priest in the South with Merton, allowing the monk to understand the ongoing moral battles against segregation in the church. In one such exchange, Merton wrote, I think we have to face the very serious fact that in the church today, obedience is invoked constantly to frustrate the real work that ought to be done for genuine issues, war, race, etc. Similarly, he expressed his exasperation with this inaction to the novice monks under his care, suggesting during one recorded conversation that unless the church took a real role in healing divisions, it would be among those judged for its failure to address systemic racism. He also felt irritation with the wider Catholic community, sharing in a letter to Louisville-born tenor, tenor Robert Williams that the behavior of so many white Catholics has effectively silenced me and deprived me of any possibility of giving you advice about the church. The church has to some extent forfeited the right to demand loyalty of her black children. These quotes, along with many others scattered throughout his published and private writings, show that Merton was both informed of the failings of the institution which defined the later half of his life and was willing to criticize, refusing to be silently complicit in the process. While the censorship and more general failings of the Catholic Church were a frustration to Merton as he was writing during the civil rights movement, his position in the Abbey of Gethsemane simultaneously offered him a platform from which to call out his fellow white liberals and white society as a whole. Because his writings were being produced by a Trappist monk in good standing within his order, he achieved a higher level of validity in the eyes of many of his Catholic readers than he would have had if he was writing from outside the institution. This, combined with his fame as a New York Times bestselling author, helped him to share his thoughts on racism with a broad audience, making his activism more effective. 
Thus, the Trappist order simultaneously acted as both a deterrent and a platform from which Merton could share his messages on racial inequality. To add another layer to this rather complicated picture, it's also necessary to consider how Merton's position in the Abbey of Gethsemane allowed him to examine the racial injustices around him from a unique perspective. Joining an order meant renouncing worldly goods and stepping away from some of his privilege of being a white man to the extremely austere and penitential life that the Trappist order practices. This was a very countercultural move because it was a radical rejection of the individual and individualism and the capitalism of the times in favor of allyship with those in poverty allowing Merton to connect more deeply with those who had been victims of injustice because, as Albert Rabateau suggested, monks are marginalized by profession. For example, his correspondence with the previously mentioned Father August Thompson were driven, in part, by his ability to relate to Thompson's frustrations with the inaction of his superiors. Merton's own experiences as a monk marginalized by his isolation and existence within a hierarchical power structure allowed him to connect with people of different races and backgrounds and to share in their struggles. In addition, Merton's separation from United States society provide him with the, provided him with the isolation to think deeply about the issues he found so pressing. And it was precisely because of his life of solitude and not in spite of it that he had a unique word to speak to the major social realities of the day. He was able to immerse himself in the deeply transformative message of sacrificial love which guided the later half of his life, one which was reflected in the aforementioned experience at the corner of Fourth and Walnut, now Muhammad Ali, in Louisville. Here he wrote, I was overwhelmed with the realization that I loved all those people, that they were mine and I theirs, that we could not be alien to one another even though we were total strangers. I have the immense joy of being man, a member of a race in which God himself became incarnate. As if the sorrows and stupidities of the human condition could overwhelm me, now I realize what we all are. And if only everybody could realize this, but it cannot be explained. There is no way of telling people that they are all walking around shining like the sun. His relationship with the Catholic teachings allowed him to connect more deeply with humanity, regardless of race, gender, or creed, and to encourage others to fight for justice. This is the gray area in which we must analyze Merton's writings, recognizing Merton's participation in one of the most isolating spaces of a Catholic church, an institution which perpetuated significant racial injustice, but which also gave him the connections to see and speak out against those same injustices while providing him a platform to share his perspective. In many ways, Merton's situation within the Catholic Church in Gethsemane can act as a guiding point for those of us working to reject the complicity of an institution while remaining within it, as is the case in numerous societal structures. For example, we can talk about the United States electoral system and how it systematically disadvantages voters of color, whether through gerrymandering or making it hard to get the documentation to vote. However, just because the system is complicit and actively harmful does not mean that there is work that can be done from within the system, like expanding voter registration efforts or working to get convicted felons their right to vote back while simultaneously working to change the structure itself. Similar arguments can be made for the school system, the prison system, access to reproductive services, what have you. 
While Merton's example shows us it is possible to work within these spaces to combat equality, it also demonstrates the importance of constantly being aware of the restrictions that these institutions place upon us, critiquing these boundaries so that we can keep moving forward. Thus, Merton provides us with an example coexisting within the ever-present Garay area that we must navigate as we work to combine reform efforts with revolutionary attempts to remove historically unequal systems and replace them with foundations for justice. While recognizing the effects uh, that being a part of the Catholic Church had on Merton is a good start, we can now shift to examine another major factor that influenced his writings on race, the color of his skin. Merton was aware of the fact that his skin was imbued with power more than the average white person in the 1960s. He rejected his whiteness, a feeling which he shared in a letter with a performer, Robert Williams, saying, quote, every day I am ashamed of being a white man, unquote. However, while Merton was able to acknowledge his privilege and use his writings to accurately explain many of the societal harms of racism and white liberal behavior, it continued to have an effect on his perspective on racial issues, creating a situation where Merton's perspective of how white people, himself included, should be viewed in relation to black people was not always enlightened as enlightened as one would hope. Perhaps the most revealing example of this can be found in Merton's private journals, which were published after his death. In them, he compares his relationship with his abbot to a talented African-American in a white community because he feels his superior despises, uses, and fears him because of their differences. He writes, the failure of communication and total lack of real contact is getting more embarrassing. Now I really know and now I really feel like an African-American in the presence of a Southern white man. The desperation of knowing that you were talking to a wall of blank refusal to see you in any other way than in his own purely arbitrary terms. Several pages later, he continues this rather uncomfortable and perhaps inappropriate comparison, again identifying his relationship with his abbot in terms of race relations in the South but this time engaging in deeply racist stereotypes. This is the one part of the presentation where I'm not changing the language, nor will I read this quote out loud. I'm gonna put it on the screen and you can read it to yourself. I must admit that I was absolutely horrified when I read this. So here I am uplifting Merton's private and published writings on race saying that he for the most part got it right only to find that in his private journals, he was perpetuating these stereotypes and failing to recognize the functioning of his own white privilege within them. To make matters worse, these excerpts are from a journal written after Merton proclaimed in a letter to Williams that no doubt white liberals are sympathetic, but they aren't black. And because they aren't, they don't know what it feels like and they are not able to enter into the experiences except abstractly. Similarly, these quotes come after letters to a white liberal in which he directly condemns the use of stereotypes like this. He was aware of the harmful nature of the stereotypes he was employing and should have known better than to compare his situation as a monk, a profession which he felt drawn to from a young age and chose for himself to the lived experience of African-Americans who had been sub subjugated and abused for decades by a hierarchy of white power in which Merton himself participated. 
However, the fact he didn't leaves us to explore these quotes in the context of his wider writings. It would be easy to dismiss these quotes by saying he was a product of his times and that what he wrote was acceptable based on this fact. This is a rather weak excuse that's often used to help us avoid the hateful reality of historical figures we'd like to admire, and it's simply not true for Merton. He was living in the time of the Black Panther Party, Bayard Rustin, Martin Luther King Jr., Pauli Murray, and so many other incredible civil rights activists who were speaking up against the exact kind of hateful and racist stereotypes to which Merton was comparing himself. If I'm being completely honest though, Perhaps part of the reason I was so horrified to read the quotes in Merton's private journals was not just the shock that he had these thoughts, but rather that he wrote them down. We all have implicit biases which have been instilled in us by the culture in which we live, but there is a common understanding that we, especially as white liberals, don't acknowledge that we have these thoughts and we certainly don't write them down. Merton used his personal journals as a direct extension of his innermost thoughts sharing what he was thinking regardless of its acceptability. In this way, it might be true to observe that Merton was being more honest than most of us by admitting that he was not immune to the stereotypes of his day and by being bold enough to put it somewhere tangible, even one that was designed to be fully private. Still, based on his own published writings and letters, he should have had more awareness when engaging with these stereotypes and there's no none of that in the surrounding journal entries. There's no coming back around and examining that he had made this comparison. But what does the fact that he didn't necessarily know better or act better, but could still actively and accurately diagnose how white liberal behavior was harmful for the movement for racial justice mean for us in the 21st century as we continue to struggle against racial hatred and injustice? Quite simply, I think that the contrast between these quotes and his more enlightened writings on race show that Merton was an imperfect human being, just like the rest of us. It would be easier if he didn't have these stereotypes, because then we could heroize him, leaning into this image of St. Thomas Merton that doesn't really require any in-depth examination of him as a person. But these quotes show that while he was in many ways more forward-thinking than other white people of his era, he was still not perfect. It's also important to note, though, that while Merton included these stereotypes in his private journals, he was also able to move beyond them in his interactions with people of color across the country. For example, in an article written by Gracie Jones, who met Merton during one of his trips, during his visit to the West Coast before his ill-fated trip to Asia, she notes him as one of the few white people with whom she was able to discuss her struggles as a black woman in a white community and in the Catholic Church saying his openness and sensitivity to the needs of the poor and those suffering from injustice were overwhelming. Similarly, Chris Pramick cites the experience of a black woman who grew up in Cincinnati in the 1960s and referred to Conjectures of a Guilty Bystander, another of Merton's books, as her Bible, stating that Merton got it when few others did. For these people of color to feel seen and heard by Merton, a white monk in the 1960s, speaks powerfully to his ability to empathize with others, regardless of their race, and uplift their humanity over all else, providing an example which we must follow. Merton was also able to walk the fine line he himself outlines in letters to a white liberal of using his platform to echo James Baldwin, Martin Luther King Jr. and other major thought leaders' criticisms of white liberal behavior, 
without necessarily taking the lead or encouraging those pushing for change to be patient. He found an effective way to use his privilege as a white man and well-known religious author to amplify their message while continuing to follow their lead. Thus, Merton is an example of what we as white people in the 21st century must do, hearing the stories of people of color and using our privilege to encourage change as he did in his published writings. And he is an example of what we must do better, committing ourselves to the necessary internal work we must do to root out any hatred within ourselves. He must not be heroized, but rather recognized as another flawed human who contributed important work on racism in the, 1960s, in the 1960s, but still fell short, just as we all will as we work for equality in our society. His shortcomings make him a relatable icon, working from within a compromised institution, which is exactly what we need in our current moment for racial justice, which can be more focused on perfection than on pushing beyond our own flaws to create change. Thus, just as his criticisms of white liberals and his solutions for their behavior remain relevant in 2024, so does Merton as an individual who we can both attempt to emulate and walk beside as an equal, making him a model for modern racial justice activism. Thank you. Wow. Thank you so much, Anne, for your thoughtful and well-researched talk. This has been a very special to listen to and there's a lot to sit with and consider so thank you for all the research and time that you put into that and with that i would now like to turn it over to judith valente our moderator for the evening for discussion and q a thanks liz and thank you so much Anne. that was so powerful and you served up so many uncomfortable truths for us, but truths that we we need to face as individuals and, and, and as a society. So now we'd like to hear from all of you. Um, what resonated for you in Anne's talk? Um, Anne's put out a couple of questions. Um, you know, how, how does some of the things that Merton wrote about back in the 60s still resonate and connect with what we're experiencing today. And also ask the question of what do we think about after hearing all of this? Uh, she has certainly reminded us that Merton was far from perfect. Was, was he a reliable narrator in this? Um, what are some of your thoughts? So I encourage you to, on your computer screen, on the bottom there, you should see a raise hand function. If you'd like to comment, uh, just please raise your hand. Um, you can go like this as well. Uh, we, 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 we might have difficulty seeing you because you're on several screens. So the raise hand comment would be, would be best. So would anybody like to jump in about something that surprised them or resonated them in Anne's talk or pose a question to Anne? Or you can put your, you can put your question in the chat and we could see it there. Uh, in fact, Kathy Bell has already put something in the in the chat saying, thank you for sharing your research. It was so enlightening. Thank you, Kathy. Um, Paul, yes, you wanted to comment. Paul Pinkowski, our vice president. Yes. Um, and I wanted to thank you for a well-researched and provocative presentation. I was uh, particularly struck 
by your discussion of black squares and performative participation in social issues and your focus on the gap that exists between uh, curial statements and actual grassroots behavior. Because um, I think that uh, that's certainly is something that occurs in issues like racism, but I think we see it in uh, the peace movement and in issues like poverty and homelessness as well, um, that gap. And I wondered if in your own experience or your research or in your reading of Merton, you found any clues on how to bridge the gap to move people from superficial activity towards something that's active and substantial? It's an excellent question, and it's something that I struggled with during 2020. And then I moved to DC last summer and have run into the same thing of it's like life is busy and it can be very exhausting to engage in the movement in certain ways because that is part of what that looks like. Um, and the thing that I've found that has helped me personally is to always run towards what is most uncomfortable or most exhausting. Like if I am unsure of where to go, there's normally an easier path and a harder path. And I tr always try and take the harder one. And I think Merton kind of did the same thing as well, that he could easily have kept his writings more private or taken the time and written all these letters, but not published more openly on racism. And so he took what he could do within his platform and took what was likely the harder route towards that. Um, but I, I don't think I have a perfect answer to it simply because it's not, I'm not perfect either. And I've been working against that since I've started getting involved in everything to do with racism, to do with injustice in the schools. Anybody else like to chime in on something that, that surprised them? I, I had to admit when I first read uh, letters to a white liberal. I, I was surprised that uh, Merton trained his criticism on white liberals rather than whites who exhibited racist behavior. I'm wondering if that if that surprised you a bit, Anne. I think it did when I initially read it, and then I started to read the context that he was responding to. So the fire next time and letters from a Birmingham jail, and they are saying. The exact same thing that Merton is. Um, he's not necessarily saying something that is completely fundamental when he criticizes, criticizes white liberals, but rather taking what is already out there and adding a step um, towards actually communicating and then building it into his own religious background and what that looks like. Um, so I don't think he was actually... It was surprising to me not having read criticisms of white liberals like that before, but now it seems like it makes sense that that's where he ended up. Good. We have some some folks who want to join in. Bob Raculia from our Chicago chapter of the ITMS. Hi, Bob. Uh, unmute, Bob, if you would. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Anne. Appreciate that. That was, that was really wonderful. Um, I was thinking about. Um, Merton kind of attacking a kind of liberalism that is not uh, willing to take action. Uh, I was thinking about Bonhoeffer, his idea of cheap grace, and I was thinking it's like Merton's criticizing a kind of cheap liberalism where um, the 
we aren't willing to take the step of the sacrifices and difficulties that might be might be involved in, in following it through with the implications um, in what we might pronounce Black Lives Matter. So what does that mean? And um, one of the things Merton seemed to be saying was in the letter to, to uh, white liberals was, uh, you know, read James Baldwin and Martin Luther King and uh, see what, what Black people are saying about their situation. Uh, don't assume that you know whether it's that you, you know, don't start from an, an idea um, of superiority or um, arrogance. Have a humility. So I don't. I was thinking, and I was thinking about that also in terms of the situation now with refugees um, in our country. And, you know, are we are we listening to the stories? And the experience of people who are coming across that border, you know, it certainly is not the same message from about what what is happening and who they are and what they need. Now, that's I think that's such a central part of Merton's writings on racism is that we cannot like he one of the points he talks the most about with white liberals is that they assume they know what is needed and therefore try and take the lead. Um, and it's one of the things within his solutions that, because this was rather short talk, you can't really dive into, was the fact that we can't be in the lead, that we'll try and take those positions and we can't. And that's something that's been thoroughly agreed on in pretty much everyone who's written on the subject in recent years. Um, so it's, and I apologize if I missed part of what you said, I, the sound is cutting in and out just a little bit, but it's, I think, one of the most relevant parts and one of the things that is not said often enough. Um, and it was one of the things that struck me the most when I first read Letters to White Liberal. Thanks, Anne. I was having a little trouble there with, with Bob's audio, so I was gonna ask him to repeat a couple of things. I'm glad you caught most of it, thank you. Sister Mary Rosita, did you wanna chime in and please unmute yourself? Sure, thank you. Uh, Anne, again, a wonderful presentation. I really appreciate it. And I appreciate the balance with which you um, brought out the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, because I think somebody like Merton, for us today, reading him and following him and holding him up as a model for the way we think and how we would like to act, it's important to see the struggle. And I think, you know, the example that you allowed us to read um, and, and especially for those of us in this group that might be religious, uh, the concerns he had with his abbot, you know, um, it, it, it just shows us the value of struggling with the truth as you know it, and as you would like to know it, and as others share with you, and then constantly trying to improve. And so again, that holds Merton up to us, and I really appreciate your um, presentation for that. Um, for that, for that piece of uh, appreciating Merton going forward. Thank you. Thank you very much. I think one of the challenges, and maybe this is just being a young person while working on racial justice issues, is that fear of messing up. I know there's always, always, always a lot of talk about cancel culture on either side. And I think part of the reason that that's such a big issue is because we don't, this is true with Merton, but it's also true with people like MLK. Like, we don't acknowledge 
the bad as well as the good. And when we expect perfection from the idols that we try and emulate, we lose sight of our ability to actually make mistakes and grow from them. And that's sort of the standard of we have to be able to grow and improve or else we don't get where we need to go. And so that's while I kind of initially read the piece, though, especially like the second quote um, from his journals when I was doing my thesis and nearly put the whole thesis aside, it was that coming back around of allowing mistakes to happen and still be able to take the good and the bad. So thank you. Uh, we'll go to Roberta and then uh, we've got a couple of good questions in the chat come through. Thank you. Um, and thank you, Anne, for your presentation and bringing Merton in a way I hadn't seen him before. So I'm grateful for that. I found myself thinking about Martin Luther King Jr.'s small but powerful little book, Letter from, Letters from a Birmingham Jail, and his calling out of white uh, religious figures uh, who seemed to be on his side but weren't acting. And I think the the um, taking the action, and, and you expressed it, Anne, a lot of what I've been thinking too, and work done within my Dominican congregation around anti-racism, is we've got to take steps knowing we're going to make mistakes. But the only way that we will grow and grow out of our internalized racism, when we all have it, because we we're, we're, we're swing, swimming in this white culture, is to, to try to take steps to change and to strive to be allies, but only can be allies when the other says we're, you're an ally. I cannot name myself as an ally, but to take those steps and make the mistakes. But Martin Luther King just kept coming back to me as I, I saw his um, Merton's writing. So thank you for that. Yeah. Well, and Merton was so heavily influenced by MLK and they were, I believe, they were planning a retreat for king to come to Gethsemane before his rather untimely death so they were they were contemporaries in a way that was very influential to Merton and so that makes perfect sense thanks sister Roberta we had a question question a couple of questions in the chat um you know considering Merton's thoughts about white liberals wanting to hold on to their comforts uh what is a white liberal supposed to do to combat racism We'll start by actually getting involved. Um, and I think this is like, there's so many things that Merton lists and so many things that more recent authors have put out there. But the first one is always to quit standing around and just saying you believe that racism is bad and actually start figuring out how you've benefited from it and how you could start to address a system or structure that it has that inherently built into it. But then there's so many other points that they make of the ways in which you engage, the way that you're, you're never, like you should not be in the lead, that you should be following and taking the language of the people who are willing to speak, which is one of the one areas where Merton falls rather short, um, is he suggests that if white liberals are ready to listen, people of color should be ready to share um, in a way that it comes across as him being like at any point which is just not really appropriate in a day and age where we can access information on any topic at any time we want. That's been put there by people who have done that work on their own time, on their own schedule. Um, so there's, there's one of the spots where Merton's not quite so accurate. 
but it's it is that consistent not allowing yourself to stop the work simply because it's uncomfortable to continually be aware of the places in which work is needed um, and then to actually go out and do the work itself. Got a comment from Glenn Amorosia, which is kind of interesting. He said, uh, Thomas Merton was a leader as an American Catholic against racism in the 1960s, which was a pretty low bar <laughs> at that time, as you point out in your talk, Anne. Um, but nonetheless, Glenn says Merton was on the right side of the debate. Um, your thoughts on that, Anne? I think that's pretty accurate. Um, I think the more I dug into the history of the Catholic Church, I, the more I kept hoping I'd find more people like Merton. Um, and while many there were many individuals doing it within local communities, there are very few on a national stage. And yeah, as Glenn said, it was kind of a low bar. But here's a, an interesting question from Abigail, who who's notes that you, you've been giving this talk uh, since 20, 2020 in, in various locations. And she's wondering, have you noticed a difference in how the audience receives it? Um, particularly your your um, call at the end to action and personal conversion. Have you have you seen that um, people have become um, more or less engaged by your message? Well, they make a very interesting point because um, and they've actually seen a couple of the talks. Um, when I started presenting this, um, I guess the first major presentation I did would have actually been in 2022 when I was graduating and finishing my thesis up. Um, there are people who are, there was a couple who actually walked out of the room, which was fun. Mm -hmm. um, I think they were probably there for somebody else's presentation, but didn't particularly like what I was saying. Um, I think it's interesting because there's been this sort of dual shift where half half the time people are less engaged that racism and racial justice work while obviously still continuing is not making headlines as much anymore and so this is not at the forefront of people's minds um and even within the justice community there right now the discussion is often more on what's happening in the middle east than it is on what's happening in the united states um, so it's sometimes there's this like disconnect of we aren't thinking about it as much. Um, but then there are, there's this kind of true line with people being challenged by Merton constantly, always, um, that what he has to say every time it comes up, even if you've heard it, every time I read letters to a white liberal, it's challenging in its own way. Um, and so it's sort of a mixed bag. Well, Ben Burkemper wonders if um, how Merton might have addressed racism had he not been a monk in the Abbey of Gethsemane. Um, you know, what what kind of action do you think he would have taken? I, I realize this is speculative on on your part, but we'll put you on the we'll put you on the spot. I mean, there he goes through a lot in his personal journals, um, especially the earlier ones. And one of the big things that he was considering when he was being so intensely drawn towards a monastery, but not knowing which monastic order, um, is that he went and worked in Harlem for a period of time, which was deeply influential in his later writings that he did while he was in the monastery, but also just had a significant impact on his life. And so there were discussions, I certainly before he went into the Trappist order, and I believe even once he was in the Trappist order, 
of talking about maybe he should leave and go back to Harlem and be doing the racial justice work that he was doing. Um, I believe it's with the Baron von Hook, but I'm worried I'm saying that wrong. Um, and so, um, so that would probably have been one of the major options. Um, and he was also a teacher, but given his experiences at St. Bonaventure, I'm not sure that that was something that he would have particularly wanted to go back to. You know, and um, something that struck me, ha has struck me about, about Merton is that he he wrote to Coretta, Coretta Scott King when Dr. King died. He wrote to um, the father of um, uh, Carol Denise, um, Carol Denise, one of the young girls who died in the Birmingham bombing. He wrote to his father um, and he wrote a poem about the, one of the little girls who died in the Birmingham bombing. And it seems like I, I I can't name any Catholic leader today who would who would have the authenticity to do that. Um, and it relates my observation relates to a question or a comment here that Glenn Amorosia has put in the chat. Are there examples of white liberals or white people today or whites in the hierarchy of the church um, who have found a meaningful approach? to racism. I mean, I, I don't know if somebody from the current church hierarchy could have written to Breonna Taylor's um, parents, for example. Um, Merton probably would have. What do you think? That's a very interesting and difficult question because I think when I, I think of white liberals who have actually found effective ways to do work, I tend to think of people who I know personally researchers or activists who I have worked with or friends who have been on the front lines doing the work and less about people who are within the structure itself. Um, and I have to admit that I may be a little disconnected from some of those areas, but I do know that when you talk about people who are at least doing the academic work, um, that there are a lot of Merton people and a lot of people within the Catholic social justice realm who are publishing and speaking on issues like this. Um, but I don't, I imagine there are people on this call who are better suited to answer if there are people like Merton who would be that engaged individually and one-on-one, -on -one, um, out, who are like known in the hierarchy versus individuals who are just doing that in the day-to-day -day life because that's who they are. Yeah, we have some some Merton scholars on our on our call tonight. Um, I'm wondering if uh, any of them would like to weigh in. I see Bonnie Thurston on the call. If Bonnie would would like to weigh in on this, particularly, you know, your your points about how Merton was sometimes a, an imperfect narrator on this on this particular issue. I don't know if uh, Bonnie's still with us or if, if someone else wants to chime chime in who's um, who's studied Merton. I don't know. Maybe maybe Bonnie ha had to come come off the call. But there's a there's another uh, comment in the chat. Michelle says, I, "I'm here. I just would prefer to listen to the others tonight. This okay. is a subject I don't know very much about, and so it's fun to to learn and to listen. And um, you know, I, I, I'm with you, but um, I don't really have a lot to add to this. I, I um, yeah, that's enough." <laughs> Well, it's great to have you here, Bonnie, an honor to have you. Uh, oh, no, no, my goodness. No, no. It's it's wonderful to hear this. Uh, other people's scholarship. Thank you. But 
it's my privilege. Wonderful job, Anne. Just brilliant. Thank you. And uh, Michelle put in the chat, she wants to thank you for your important uh, critical research and insights um, and that your analysis will continue to be inspirational. She hopes your analysis will continue to be inspirational and challenging for Catholics seeking peace today. Um, so I think you've, you've struck a nerve with, it, with everything that you've said. Um, anybody else wanna, wanna comment? We've got some, some terrific people on the call. I see John Ostenberg is uh, one of our Illinois, former Illinois legislators is on the call. John, any, any thoughts? You've been in public life and I'm sure you've confronted racism um, issues in, in your uh, time as a legislator. Any comments, John? Well, I, I enjoyed the presentation. I, I think, um, you know, Merton certainly um, was an influence for me in approaching racial matters, particularly when I started to do some racial equity work. Um, it was what, what always struck me was how insightful he was so early and so far before his, the, the rest of society seemed to catch up with it, uh, especially in the specific area of racial equity. Uh, within our municipalities, within certain levels of government. Uh, what Merton was saying, really, um, uh, when I was involved with the National League of Cities uh, on its racial equity uh, program, uh, I would hear speakers at the national level say things, and I would think, I've read something like that before. And sure enough, it was something I read from Merton a long time previous. I mean, it was just that insightfulness that really, to me, was, was a great motivation. So thank you. And I enjoyed the presentation. Thank you, Anne. No, I think that especially in the long term, I did grow up with Merton in my life because I couldn't avoid it. Um, and I had very much not wanted much to do with Merton until I read his stuff on racism, because while a lot of his other writings are very interesting, it was the continued relevancy of what he had to say on racial equity that made me come back around and go, okay, there's something here that I want and need to dig into. Um, and so, yeah, it's like you said, the fact that what he had to say then is still so relevant now is very impressive and requires a lot more research than it's had. Well, perhaps one final question, because it's getting to be uh, our quitting time. Um, your, your, Comments on the history of the Catholic Church are very, very distressing to those of us who are in the, I'm part of the Catholic Church. Do you have you in your research or your speaking with people see any movement um, in in the Catholic hierarchy in the Catholic Church um, that gives us hope for the future? I'll just say really briefly. Um, here in my own community, the Benedictine Oblates, the lay association of Benedictine monasteries, sent a letter to the editor um, supporting the Black Lives Matter movement. And that letter was signed by the rabbi from the temple here in our community, the priest at the Hindu temple in our community, various Protestant churches. We have five Catholic churches in our community, not one Catholic priest would sign that letter supporting Black Lives Matter. That was just a couple of years ago. So what 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 are you seeing, Anne? Um, well, the United States context of the Catholic Church does ring very different than the rest of the world. Um, 
the British Catholic Church is very, very different in the way it operates and its political stance as well. I think I Kentucky itself is a very interesting case study for this because during Black Lives Matter, those protests, the uh, um, the bishop in Lexington was very outspoken um, and was I was very impressed consistently acting in a way that Merton would highly have approved of. The Archbishop in Louisville was not. So it's there doesn't seem to be any consistency within the hierarchy um, in the same way that there wasn't during Merton's time, that there's always going to be people on either end of the spectrum, just as there will be in the congregations. But there are people out there willing to speak out um, and who have continually been a voice as we've moved on and into new years. And so I think I draw, as someone who sort of struggles with my faith and specifically with the Catholic Church and how that, in the hierarchy and how that impacts my faith, I very heavily lean into the people who are speaking out, like the bishop in Lexington. Like Those are the people from which I draw my faith and what I have. And so I think those examples are there. They're just, you got to look for them a little harder than I wish we had to. Well, that's that's hopeful. That's a hopeful note on on which to end. And 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 the people, as you say, the people doing things on the grassroots level. Um, some of some of our speakers to other some of those who commented tonight referenced some things that are going on on the the grassroots level. We had a member of Pox Christi USA here on the call tonight. So that all gives us hope. I'll turn it back to Liz now for some final thoughts. Thanks, Judy. Um, thank you, Anne. Please, everyone, join me in thanking Anne for her talk again. This has been really special. I would also like to thank Judith Valente for offering our opening prayer and moderating questions and discussion this evening. Thanks, Judy. And finally, thank you so much to Peter Cunningham and Christine Penkoski for providing technical support for tonight's webinar. If you'd like to access this recording or others, you can find links at merton.org slash ITMS. And registration is now open for next month's webinar when writer and contemplative activist Leslie Colvin will speak to us on Merton, an invitation to unbind him and ourselves. If you would like to learn more about the work of our co-sponsor, the Bernadine Center at Catholic Theological Union in Chicago, please visit ctu.edu slash academics slash Bernadine dash center. If you would like to become a member of the International Thomas Merton Society and receive the Merton Seasonal Magazine, as well as updates on our upcoming programs and conferences and information on new books published about Thomas Merton, you can join us as a member online at merton.org. Thank you so much for joining us this evening and continuing to spread the word about Tuesdays with Merton. Take care, everyone. Stay safe. And we look forward to seeing you again next month. <laughs>